0: In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Well, we're back in the Gospel of Mark this morning in our series that we've entitled The Amazing True Story of Jesus. Uh, The reason that we've called it that is because as you read through Mark's Gospel, it reads a lot more like an action movie, where each scene happens immediately, one after the other, leaving everybody that sees what's happened amazed. And so this morning, we're going to be thinking about exactly what it is that, uh, Mark is up to, uh, in his gospel. Now, you'll know that last Mark, I mean, uh, last week, Mark told us that Jesus really is the most amazing person that's ever lived in history. Great prophets like Isaiah, Elijah, and John the Baptist aren't worthy of tying Jesus' shoelaces. In fact, in verse eight, it ended with John the Baptist saying that, that Jesus was going to be coming. And while John the Baptist baptized with water, this one that was to come would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is important. Usually, it's the the greater that baptizes the lesser. And so you would expect that whoever the greater is to to baptize the lesser person. But you'll notice this morning that we're going to open up reading about how John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. Now, I want to clarify as we begin, what Jesus, or what John the Baptist meant when he said that John the Baptist baptized with water, but Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. See, what what John wasn't saying was that he baptized with water, but Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit instead of water. You catch that? He's not saying that when Jesus shows up, we won't need water for baptism anymore. No, what, he, what he's saying is, is when Jesus comes, he is going to be baptizing, but not merely with the Holy Spirit or not merely with water. He will be baptizing and both will be present in what we see in the early, in the early church. So John is actually saying that Jesus would, would also baptize with water and the Holy Spirit. He's doing something more than what he's doing, not less. And I believe that Mark clarifies this to prepare us to understand how we ought to think about John baptizing Jesus this morning. Now the reason I make that point is because uh, I, when I first got to Trinity, like I actually met somebody uh, who believed that you didn't need to be baptized in water anymore because Jesus has come and given us the Holy Spirit. And I, I didn't really know that there were people that believed that kind of stuff, but there are. There's actually people who have thought through this and they've, they've taught that because of texts like these... We don't need uh, water at baptism. But what we find throughout the church history is that water is always accompanied um, baptism. It is the way that the early church, the way that Jesus practiced, the way the New Testament practiced. uh, This is what it is to be a Christian, is to baptize with water as a symbol of the presence of the Holy Spirit. We'll be talking about that more later. But this morning, what we want to talk more about is our big idea. It's this, that Jesus' unique baptism set the usual pattern for God followers. Jesus' unique baptism set the pattern for God followers. In other words, this is what everybody after him is going to do. It, his was unique, and yet we find that it is also setting a pattern for what we do. Now we'll see this first in verses 9 to 11, where John baptizes Jesus. Verses 9 to 11. Uh, now, you'll notice that Mark, he doesn't record Jesus of Nazareth birth. Doesn't talk about it. Doesn't talk about Mary and the baby and the sweet story with the crib. He doesn't go there. He doesn't have time for that. Now he jumps right in to Jesus of Nazareth being baptized. Now, it's interesting that he's from Nazareth. Nazareth was a small, insignificant Galilean village. And in fact, if you're looking at a map, you'll find that Galilee is up north on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. And then you had the non-Christian area of Samaria. And then below that, you would find Judea. Now Judea is where Jerusalem and Judah are. That's where the the kingdom of God is and where the people of God are, are thought to have lived. It's the presence of where God is with his people. And so Galilee was really up north in a place that was considered to be less religious and kind of backwoodsy. I mean, they thought that the folks up north had strange Aramaic accents. They spoke with a strange dialect. I mean, you're you're thinking about the Clampets from the Beverly Hillbillies, right? And so when people are thinking about Galilee, they're thinking, can anything good come from a place like Nazareth? Isn't that what we hear in John's Gospel? You'll remember uh, whenever Philip comes to Nathaniel and he says, I found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. And he says, Nazareth, can anything good come come from Nazareth. I mean, what a humble place to come from. Now, you might be having a hard time relating to this, so let me bring it back into the modern way that we might be thinking about this and having trouble with something like this. Uh, Many of you, uh, if you're a sports fan, you probably heard that the Cubs will never win the World Series, right? I mean, do winners ever come from Chicago? Anybody sports fans? Jesus fans, anybody? Just making sure we're awake. All right. Okay. So sports fans, we just, uh, can the Cubs win? They haven't won since like 1908. I don't even know if that counted back then. And so, uh, you're just wondering, can this happen? Well, just recently, uh, we found out they're going to be in the World Series. And everybody's like, you got to be kidding me. Whoever saw the Cubs in the World Series? This is great news. What's well, the kind of same kind of thing with the Messiah, but even worse. There was no 1908 for Nazareth. Nothing big ever happened in Nazareth. A lot of people didn't even know where Nazareth was. And yet here we find the Gospels opening up, saying we have got the Messiah coming from this insignificant little village that so many people look down on. And it's there that we find Jesus coming out from into the wilderness to meet John the Baptist, who's baptizing Jews, to launch his earthly ministry with his own baptism in verse 9. And look there what happens as Jesus launches His ministry. It says there in verse 9, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, baptism, what's going on, it's a Greek word. It means to dunk or to soak or to plunge someone underwater. But catch this. Jesus' baptism was unlike any baptism we've ever seen before or since. I mean, Just think about it. Sinners have flocked out of Judea, out of Jerusalem, into the desert to repent of their sins and get baptized when Jesus literally walks into the waters representing their sins. I mean, aren't you so glad? As we read this story, this brief account of Jesus' baptism, it almost seems like, It's almost like they're embarrassed to say that he was baptized by John the Baptist. Aren't you so glad though in that story that we find that Jesus didn't just sit on the shoreline? Did you notice that? He didn't come to the the shore of their sins, of the water where repentance and forgiveness of sins is taking place as John the Baptist is is looking for the coming Messiah who's going to deliver them. He doesn't come and look on these sinners in these sinful waters, these waters that often represented chaos, and evil powers. He doesn't come to those waters and, and do all of what we would hope he wouldn't do, but could do, right? He doesn't go to the water on that day and start sitting on the, the seashore, remaining homeside, lobbing rebuke at the sinners in the water. Saying, Look, you are so sinful, right? Like, you need to be out there taking a bath. You're dirty. He could have merely sat there instead, just pitying their helplessness. Like, man, I don't even, I don't even want to get into this. This is, this is sad. I mean, who's, who's going to help them? So sad. I pity those sinners. I mean, they're destroying themselves and others and they don't even know how sinful they are. Or he could have just grabbed some SPF 30 and caught some rays on the beach, right? said, boy, this is a great creation that I have made. I'm so glad that I'm unaffected by all of this sin. Don't forget the incredible humility that it would take for him to step into the water with those sinners. He's the most amazing person that's ever lived. The, kings, the king of kings. And he's going to ask John the Baptist, this prophet in the desert who eats locust, to baptize him. I mean, shouldn't it be the other way around? And Jesus' humility looks even more amazing knowing that He lived a perfectly righteous life, obedient to His heavenly Father in every way. He never lied. He never stole, dishonored His parents. He never fornicated or lusted. And He had every right to stay homeside that day. And yet, Jesus dove into the waters of our sins to pull you and me to safety. Don't miss this. If Jesus doesn't dive in, we drown in our sin. Jesus in Jordan's waters anticipate Calvary's cross. See, he's becoming fully incorporated with you and me. He is becoming the brother who comes alongside us so that he can help deliver us. The king, like no other, became our brother so he could die in the place as our saviour. And Jesus didn't just sit on the shore looking at our sins. He willingly jumps in. And this is Jesus' ministry deployment. I'm jumping in sin with my people so that I can save them and give them a new name. Now, if you're a non-Christian, know that the good news of Jesus, know where it starts. If you're here this morning and, and you've not put your faith in Christ, or you don't even know what that means You need to know that the good news about who Jesus is begins with some very true but bad news about you and me and every human. It's that we are buried or drowned in our sins left to ourselves. We are hopeless on our own. And step one of salvation is admitting that you have a problem. And that problem is above all else that you are a sinner before a holy God dead in your transgressions and need, in need of rescue. Do you know that this morning? See, so we're not just drowning in our sins. That's not the message of the gospel, that we're kind of just grasping for our last breath, kind of bobbing up and down, and we just need God to hold us up a little bit so we can breathe again. The message of the gospel is that we are dead and drowned, and He needs to raise up our corpse from beneath the waters of our sin and resuscitate us and give us a new life and a new heart so that we can breathe. That's the meaning of the gospel. And brother, if you this morning uh, have friends who don't know this gospel, tell them this gospel. And maybe you're interested in God this morning because you need help with your kids or your marriage or your addictions or your finances. And, and, and you've come to find answers to those problems. And, and let me tell you that God can help. There's no one else who can help. But friend, your greatest need is not these things, but to put your faith in Jesus who died that you might truly live. Don't live. Don't leave here today without talking about what it means to put your faith in Christ brothers and sisters in Christ, we too need to be reminded of something here as we begin the ministry of Jesus. We need to be reminded regularly that our salvation is nothing less than a rescue mission, and we weren't easy. We weren't easy to save. You know, when I was in high school, um, I had a friend named Paul with Down syndrome, and he was was about, I think, 30, 35 at the time, real happy-go-lucky guy, unless you threatened to to tell his mom about something. And then he would like get very angry and I would be scared for my life. But any other time, he was very happy, fun, fun guy. And I used to help at these camps uh, that, that were for kids with disabilities and, and adults with disabilities. And I remember we used to have this time during those summer camps where we would go swimming. And here's the thing about Paul. Paul loved to swim, Problem was, Paul was scared to death of the water, and so Paul would jump in with his floaties. I mean, you can imagine a 35-year-old guy with a massive smile, floaties. He had the, like, duck thing around his waist. He would come, he would just jump in all excited, and he would sit there for a minute, and then he would realize he was in water and that he was scared of water, all right? And so he would start flailing, and he was a large man, and he would start kicking around, and our job was really to save Paul from Paul, Right? And so we're trying to keep him from flipping over and drowning himself. And as we're coming in the water alongside him, we're holding him up. He's slinging his arms. He's hitting us. He's beating us. And, and we're just doing everything we can do not to get knocked out and drown with him. Well, fortunately, we, we always save Paul. But the person that we had to save Paul most from, it wasn't a thing, the water. It was Paul himself that we had to save Paul from. And, you know, to be honest with you, in so many ways, Uh, our salvation is much like that. It's not that we need to be saved mostly from ourselves. We need to be saved from the wrath of God. But our biggest enemy often in that, that whole process of salvation is us fighting, kicking, and screaming against the salvation that we so desperately need. And we need to realize that God didn't come down for beautiful, like, you know, perfect people to save them. He came down for sinners and nobody else. Sinners who have rebelled against him to save them as they were kicking and screaming against him. Friends, that's the kind of salvation that God has brought to you and has caught to me. It cost Jesus His life to save us. And it would take nothing less than His blood to save sinners like you and me. And I think that this ought to really motivate us to do a few things. One is, if we really understand the salvation that we see Jesus stepping into here for me and you, this should warm our hearts towards God. This should warm our hearts towards God. Maybe this morning your heart is cold towards God, And you think it's all kinds of things, but really the the great thing it is, is this morning you were cold because you have not taken time to think about how deeply you needed to be saved and to what extent God went to save you. This would warm our hearts in profound ways knowing that God deployed His one-of-a-kind Son to immerse Himself in our sins at the cross where He bore God's wrath to rescue you and me. What God has done this? What other God claims to be willing to do this? We have a God who did it. It also ought to humble us that we needed to be rescued that badly. It was nothing less than the death of the Son of God that could save us. We were good at drowning when God saved us. And third, it should motivate us to dive in and rescue others. Right? We, we know where this story's going. This is the story of Jesus who wants to rescue disciples who he tells to go out and make other disciples. He sends us on a rescue mission. So as you think about this, this morning, we've been talking a lot about praying for others, sharing Christ with others. We've handed out these cards and say, I'm committed to praying regularly for a certain person. I've got my card this morning. Do you have your card? Like, I'd like you to take this serious. Do you need a card? We'll get you a card. You could make your own card. But but you should have someone in your heart, in your Bible, that you're praying for regularly that is a non-Christian friend or family member that needs Jesus. Maybe it's your child. But friends, I've got somebody. I've got an appointment this week for, with the, the person on my card. I'm praying that he's going to come to faith this week. Might not, but I'm praying, I'm hoping... It's amazing that we're even meeting. And, and I'm praying that God does something. Are you praying? Are you praying that God would bring people to you that you could rescue as you have been rescued by Christ? And that's what God is calling us to. He's calling us to join a search and rescue mission that He Himself has started. I noticed that there are three things that happen immediately after Jesus comes out of the water for His baptism. Uh, you see that. Three unique things that events at Jesus' baptism in verses 10 to 11. Three unique events. And we'll read about those in, in Mark 1, 10-11. So look there again in God's Word with me. Here's what it says. It says, And when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With You I am well Pleased. Now Jesus, first, first thing he saw was the heavens being torn open in the first part of ten. Now, see Matthew and Luke simply saw the heavens and said that they were opened uh, when they speak of it, but not Mark. Mark is he's an action writer, and so uh, that's not powerful enough for him. And Mark says the heavens were torn open. Now Old Testament texts like Isaiah sixty four one they they speak of a time when these heavens would be torn open. In fact, the heavens uh, represented a curtain that separated God from man. And, and, and in, in Isaiah and other texts we're told that one day, uh, God Himself would come, up, come and rip open that curtain that separates God from man, and that He Himself would step into history to set things right. See, God, we're told, uh, used a curtain in another place in the temple. That's where the Jews worshipped and were told that that temple was actually built as a sort of a, a model of creation itself. And in that temple, there was a holy of holies where God resided, and then there was a thick veil or curtain that separated God from the rest of humanity. And God resided behind that veil. And what's amazing is, you'll hear where I'm going, in Mark 15, 37-38 Mark uses the same word for God tearing open the heavens at Jesus' baptism to describe God tearing apart the veil in the temple. And catch this, from top to bottom. You see it? God showing that He Himself is reaching down into that that curtain that for hundreds, thousands of years had separated God from His people. He says He ripped it open. Because there's an a kind of access that has come through the death of Jesus on the cross with God like none that has been before. Why did God rip it when Jesus died? Well, it's because God's wrath towards His people and the separation between God and His people had been satisfied by Jesus' death. So God, catch this, He ripped open the heavens to send Jesus to be with us so that Jesus could rip open the heavens for us to be with God. You see that? Isn't that amazing? So Jesus came to go to the cross for you and me. And that's why Christian baptism pictures us being buried with Christ and raised with newness of life after the pattern of Jesus' life. That's how he brought us into the presence of God. But the second thing that he saw was that the Holy Spirit was descending like a dove on Jesus. Jesus. Now, commentators are are conflicted over this picture of the dove and the Holy Spirit. We we don't see the Holy Spirit associated with the dove in other places. And the Holy Spirit is invisible. He doesn't have a body like ours unless He chooses to reveal Himself. Now, some say this points to the Spirit hovering over the face of those chaotic waters in Genesis 1-2 before God brought out creation. And others have said that this dove pointed to another text, to Noah in Genesis 8, where you'll remember the flood that wiped everyone but Noah's family off the planet had ended and a new creation was begun, signaled by the coming of the dove to Noah. Now, I don't want us to become a divided church over what this dove represents, okay? Okay. That is supposed to be funny. Hopefully we wouldn't divide over something like that. But I believe that it's actually both. I believe the dove-like Holy Spirit marks the beginning of a new creation with God's King Jesus. And the Spirit lands on Jesus, anointing Him as God's Son. You remember that Adam came as a king-like figure who had dominion over all of the earth. And we know that son of God is a title for king. So uh, Psalm 2.7 speaks of the king that God is going to enthrone. And then we are told that that God will tell that king, you are my son. But this king is different than other kings. And that we're told that he will also be a suffering servant like Isaiah Looked for in Isaiah 42 1. And if you listen to what Isaiah 42 1 says of this servant that is coming, it sounds really familiar to what God says to his son in Mark chapter 1. Listen to what he says there. In Isaiah 42 1, God says, Behold my servant. How can a king be a servant? But he is. He says, Who I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon Him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. So Jesus came as a servant king to do the will of his father in every way. Very important. That's what it means for the spirit to descend on Jesus. Now, here's where I think it's important for us as Christians to think about what this doesn't mean. So if you have friends who are Jehovah's Witnesses, they will look at a text like this and they will say, well, what's happening here is the spirit is descending on Jesus. And it's sort of an act of adoption, where Jesus wasn't the Son of God before, but now he's given the Spirit of God so that for the first time he is the Son of God. He was not the Messiah before, he was the Messiah at this moment, and, and therefore we, we don't see this guy that was actually born by the Holy Spirit and Mary. But friends, that's not the picture at all that we get from Mark. See, we need to understand what the Bible is saying, given the Bible on its own terms. The Bible is here picturing the fact that Jesus is the king anointed with the spirit that the prophets look forward to. And this is the beginning of that public ministry of Jesus. That's what this is picturing. It's not that he didn't have the Holy Spirit before. It's not that he didn't have the Holy Spirit after. It's not that he was adopted. Uh, He was always God's son, born of the Holy Spirit and Mary. So that's not what it means. It's a public acknowledgement of who Jesus is. It's like an enthronement coronation where they are saying, this is the king and God himself is hosting it. Well, there's a third thing that happened here though. And that's that Jesus heard the happy voice of God in voice 11. That's the third thing that Jesus sees here. Now, you'll remember that Isaiah foresaw God anointing a suffering servant who would arrive as God's king and whom God's soul would delight in. And here the voice of God erupts from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. Here's what's amazing. The Bible teaches that God created all things good. Good. But that man sinned against God in Genesis 3, resulting in every person thereafter being sinners against God, both by their, their nature and by their choice in the decisions that they make. And, and the rest of the Old Testament from Genesis 3 on tells the story of God continually intervening to help save humanity from themselves and each other. See, God's not happy with sinners who can't please God, even when He hands them down the rule book. Like We can have the rule. What we don't need is more education to please God. We don't need less than that, but that's not all we need. We need new hearts and wills that want God. And yet here we find, after thousands of years, of God's patience with sinners. Patient with them is that they have sinned against Him again and again and again And again, offering sacrifice after sacrifice for sin after sin. We find here, in the middle of the sacrifices, God rips open the heavens. And He speaks to Jesus, this man, in a way that He has never spoken to any human ever before. And says, you, you are my beloved son and with you I am well pleased. In other words, this is the king that we've been waiting for. He's God's one-of-a-kind Son who the Spirit will empower to conquer sin, death, and the devil. And here's what that means. First, Jesus isn't just another prophet like Isaiah and Elijah and John the Baptist or Muhammad. He's not just another prophet. It's not who Jesus came claiming to be. He's God's one-of-a-kind Son who is also God and with whom there is no parallel. He's not just a prophet. You can't accept Jesus and say he's just a good teacher. Here's another thing we can't do with Jesus. We can't look at Jesus and say, you know what, Jesus is a God, and I'll just take God, Jesus, and put him on my mantle along with my other gods that I worship. See, I've had cases where I've had opportunities to talk to Hindu friends who have said they were happy to receive Jesus along with all of their other gods. I said, you don't understand the uniqueness of Jesus and the fact that He is the only way to God the Father. There is no third way. There is no million other ways. There's one way to God the Father. It is through Christ the Son. See, it's only Jesus that we find the answer to sin, death, and the devil. There's another thing that we see here that we need to pause at in Jesus' baptism, and that's that we see the Trinity on clear display. Now, as Trinity Bible Church, you can understand why we would take a moment to pause here and talk about the Trinity, important doctrine for Christians throughout history. And here we see the Trinity on full display. The doctrine of the Trinity is essential to Christianity, and it distinguishes it from Islam and from Judaism who also believe in one God. We believe in one God too. But texts like this teach us that this one God has revealed Himself as existing eternally in three co-equal persons who are of the same essence. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. So here we find God the Father ripping open the heavens. The Spirit descends on God the Son. And then God the Father speaks to His Son. You see it? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all here at the same time in the same place. Now, you might think that this is like sort of a boring kind of talk that's not really that important, but it really is important if you show up to a Christian bookstore and you're looking for a Christian book or a CD. So we actually have bookstores, Christian bookstores, who would consider themselves orthodox and who we would buy books from. You would have books on display from authors who are what we call modalist? Modalism isn't a new heresy; it's an ancient heresy, and it's this belief that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit aren't actually three persons; they're actually just three different modes of the same God. So, in other words, God the Father existed, and then God the Father became God the Son, and He became God the Son until He was taken up into heaven. And then he came down as God the Spirit. So that they're not three persons in one essence. They're really just one essence in three different modes or manifestations. Really popular teachers uh, like T.D. Jakes believed this. Uh, Popular musicians like Phillips, Craigs, and Dean hold to this. And friends, let me just tell you, like those doctrines, those are not Christian doctrines. They have been Uh, called heresy throughout the history of the church by the church. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, what's the big deal? Does doctrine matter? Yes, doctrine matter. Heresy is a word that is given to describe something that is not Christian. And so we should be really careful about the streams that we drink from. If we are drinking from streams of teaching that are not flowing from people that believe in what the Bible clearly teaches... Then we shouldn't be teaching those things. We shouldn't be supporting those things. We shouldn't be buying those things. So really important that we hold to the triune God and Trinity. So please don't use, you know, the whole, uh, the whole ice, uh, gas and, uh, water analogy for the Trinity. That's not helpful. That's what, that's what modalists use. You know, that God was ice and then he was liquid and then he became a gas. Um, that, that's not a good one. Let's not use that. Let's, let's stick with what the Bible says about it. It's hard, it's difficult, uh, but let's not get cute with it. So, catch what happens immediately after Jesus is baptized. Our, our third point. Our third point. We find the Holy Spirit immediately drove Jesus to face Satan's temptation in verses 12 to 13. Did you catch that? I don't think it's an accident. It, you know, in, in Matthew's gospel, he gives a whole chapter to the baptism of Jesus And then a whole chapter to the temptation by Satan. But Mark just gives you a quick sort of abbreviated account of what happened. And he puts the two right next together. I don't think that's an accident. I think it's a clear statement of a pattern of Jesus being baptized and then being tempted. Now notice here what happens in Mark chapter 1 verses 12 to 13. We're told the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beast. And the angels were ministering to him. So immediately after he's baptized, the testing begins. Now catch this. He's, Jesus is driven even further into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that? It's the Holy Spirit that drives him there. Now this word for drive is actually a very forceful word. In some places, this word means to throw out. Or to expel. And here it's actually the Holy Spirit powerfully and forcefully driving Jesus by the Spirit into the desert for 40 days. Now, you probably know 40 is the second most popular number in the Bible next to seven, right? Moses spent 40 days with God on the mountain, Elijah spent a 40 day journey to get to the mountain. And then Israel spent 40 years wandering in the desert before Joshua led Israel into the promised land. And here Mark makes it clear that Jesus isn't merely fighting against flesh and blood. I think that's his point. The war is not just against material things. See, the wilderness represents a dangerous place full of wild animals like lions who roam around seeking who they may devour physically. And it was also a place where Satan roamed around, seeking who he may devour spiritually. There are wild beasts which speak of fallen creation. Those wild beasts, they're, they're, they're sort of giving you this picture of animals that are not living in harmony in creation, right? Wild animals, um, they, they are not the kind of animals where you expect to see Isaiah 11's image of the lion laying with the lamb. If you have a wild lion you don't want that wild lion laying with your bunny rabbit, right? Right? We, we know that. Um, unless you're trying to get rid of your bunny rabbit. Not saying I would do that kind of thing. We've got seven pets, just always looking to get rid of one. But wild animals, they, they just, you know, they, they don't play well together. And, and this is a picture of the chaos of the desert. But what it's saying is it's not just a physical enemy that's out there. There's a spiritual enemy enemy. It's physical and spiritual. Don't lose sight of the fact that there is something much greater going on than what you see with your eyes. And the Holy Spirit, He doesn't detour Jesus around the wilderness after His baptism any more than He detoured David around the valley of the shadow of death, or Israel around the, the desert wanderings. No, the Holy Spirit drives Jesus out of baptismal waters and into spiritual war against the powers of darkness. Now, a couple of things that we can draw from this. For one, know that you live in a water, that uh, you live in a world that is more than matter. We live in a world that is more than just physical things. We've been talking about that. We talked about that in our More series. But all that exists is not just material things. We live in a world where we are told that God has broken in, that he actually relates to us, is involved with us, and it's not just God who's involved with us. There is spiritual evil involved in this world that we need to be aware of. And our biggest enemies aren't even necessarily enemies that we can see. We do believe in unseen spiritual powers at work in this world. Now, unseen doesn't mean unreal. We don't believe Satan is a metaphor for evil. He's a literal being who leads demons, fallen angels, who rebelled against God and who are destined to. Hell. Now these demons and, and Satan, they are not all powerful. They are not all present. They're not all knowing. And we shouldn't be paralyzed by fear of them because we know from Job and other texts that God keeps them on a short leash and their ultimate end is already coming. But our spiritual lives in the material world are nothing less than a war with the highest stakes. And we need to take spiritual powers seriously. But also we see here, in the, de- the wilderness. Second, becoming a Christian. Hear me. This is so important and the message that we need to make sure that we are communicating to those who want to come to faith in Christ. Nothing more amazing than being united by faith with Christ. But we need to know that becoming a Christian may mean that things get harder before they get easier. I mean, did you notice? Jesus is baptized. God is pleased with Him. I mean, who doesn't want that experience? God is pleased with me. That is a mountaintop experience in the valley of the wilderness. And yet the very next scene is, and then Satan shows up. Do you think that is a message for you and me at all? I think so. I don't want anyone to be deceived into thinking that coming to Jesus means that your wife or your husband will love you perfectly. That you will no longer struggle with anger. That your boss is probably going to give you a raise very soon and that you will only hit green lights from now until Jesus gets back. Now, that's not what, what salvation means. See, there's a reason the logo for Christianity is a cross and not a couch. Those who follow Jesus receive eternal life. But we must suffer with Him. Paul says it this way in Romans eight sixteen to 17 the Spirit Himself bears witness with our Spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. I mean, what more encouraging words? Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see it? Now, most of us would say, could you just put a period right after fellow heirs with Christ? I like that deal. Don't like the deal where it says, provided we suffer. I don't like that. I want the first part, not the second part. But Paul says, it is a joint deal. You got to do both. You got to see both. So we will not, as we look at this, we must know that both are true. Those who become Christians are baptized. And that's, friends, usually when the true war begins. It's when we go public with our declaration of the fact that we are following Christ. And these are believers that are saying that We're going to follow Christ together. And it's then that, that Satan really gets angry. But don't miss this. The temptation and testing that faces us. Friends, that's grace too. You might say, well, I don't think that temptation very often feels like grace. Well, just hear me out. Thomas Watson, a Puritan pastor, said this about temptation, those snares and enticements that are laid by Satan for you and me. He says, Satan does not tempt God's children because they have sin in them. Did you catch that? that? Satan does not tempt God's children because they have sin in them. But, because they have grace in them. Had they no grace, the devil would not disturb them. Though to be tempted is a trouble, yet to think why you are tempted is a comfort See, Satan is attacking us because we are where God's grace is breaking out. And he hates grace. So friend, as you are tempted, be encouraged to know that it is actually a signal that God is at work there. Otherwise, Satan would leave you alone. And we will not always win against temptation, but the real question is, whose side are we taking? Are we taking God's side against sin or sin's side against God? Friends, how you answer that question makes all the difference. Because the third thing that we see here is that God has taken our side. God has taken our side against sin. Right? Isn't that the message of the gospel? Jesus stepped into the waters of our repentance of sin when we were seeking forgiveness. He took on our sin for us. He entered in with us to take our side in the fight against sin. And so temptation, it speaks of the snares and traps of the enemy set for God's kids. But Jesus triumphed over Satan every time. Every temptation that came His way. There were bear traps everywhere and He stomped and crushed them all. So that we would not be caught up in the temptations and snares set for you and me. He obeyed God in every single way. So that through faith, His obedience is charged to us. While well, our disobedience was worn by Jesus on the cross. So Jesus' baptism and the temptation that follows, that baptism sets the pattern for you and me and every Christian that follows. That's what it tells us. Jesus has triumphed over sin, death, and the devil, and these baptismal waters point to that. Now we're going to be talking about baptism in our class coming up, not this Saturday I'm told, but next Saturday on November 5th. But as we, as we get prepared for that, let me just give you some thoughts that, that we have about baptism here. First is, if you're a non-Christian, let me encourage you to put your faith in Christ who took on your sin for you. You know, your answer to, to forgiveness is not just to jump into the baptismal and the waters will magically save you. That's not what we believe happens at baptism. No, what you need to do first is come straight to Jesus and put your faith in the fact that He literally died for you, a sinner, so that you might find forgiveness with God and Him and Him alone. Turning your life from living for sin to living for Christ as King. That's what you need to do today. And I I would encourage you, don't leave here today without talking to someone. I would love you to talk to me about it. And if you really are interested in knowing what it means to become a Christian, we have a connections class that's coming up where we talk about how people can connect with God and others in the local church. That'll be coming up in a couple of Wednesdays. You can come to that and we'll tell you about the gospel and what that means for your life and what it means to become a believer. So please talk to me or join that connections class and we'll tell you what it means to be a Christian. Uh, Second thing is, uh, we see here, I believe a picture that baptism is by immersion. I mean, Jesus seems like he was immersed, right? Walks down into the Jordan River. Uh, Then he comes up out of it. I mean, to me, it seems like pretty clear immersion. So, in my house, we have a saying that I just made up like right now. We'll use it from here on after, I promise. You you don't use a chainsaw to cut butter when a knife will do, right? Like, you don't need like a bunch of water if all you need to do is sprinkle. And so, why do you go to the river? You go to the river because you got to get dunked. I mean, it's just real clear. That's common sense, like exegesis there, okay? Like, you go to the water to get dunked. That's exactly what they did. Uh, They came and we come like Jesus. To be immersed. That's why the Didache, which is a, a first century writing that tells us about the practices of the church, they say that the best baptism is by immersion and that it's in cold, running water. Now, if you don't have like enough water to immerse somebody, and if it's not cold enough, and if it's not running, well, you can make some you know, slight emendations as you need, right? Because we're not legalists here. But that's the ideal. Why? Well, because that's how Jesus was baptized. Who doesn't want to be baptized like Jesus was baptized? Baptism is also for those who publicly profess faith in Jesus. See, we don't believe that baptism is for believers and their children. Lest their children come to faith and then baptism is for their children. See, we believe baptism is an outward display of an inward reality of something that has taken place that is really amazing. Heart circumcision, where the Holy Spirit has come and sealed someone For God and His inheritance and for, and as heirs for the kingdom. And that is evidenced by the fact that we uh, vocally confess that Jesus Christ is our Lord. His kingship rules in our heart. That's where the reign begins to express itself, is in the hearts of men and women, boys and girls who have put their faith in Jesus. And it's evidenced by the fact that we turn from living to sin, from living for sin, to living for Jesus and confessing Him as King. See, repentance and faith are really just opposite sides of the same coin. You're turning from living to the world to living to Jesus as King. That's what you're turning to. This is a public declaration made by believers and by the church about what God has done as best we can see. That's why we baptize in a church. It's because we believe that we as a people are affirming that we believe this is one who has put their faith in Christ as best we can tell. So there are evidences of grace and there's evidence of the fact that they profess Jesus. It's a public declaration of what's going on, but it's a public declaration of a hidden inward reality that begins in the heart. Fourth, Jesus' baptism meant Jesus joining His people, while Christian baptism means that we join Christ and His body, the church. Let me say that again. Jesus' baptism Meant Jesus joining his people, right? He's stepping into the waters where they are being, they were repenting of their sins and putting their faith in, uh, in this coming Messiah. But Christian baptism, it's a little different in that we are actually joining Christ and his body, the church, as we are baptized. See, baptism has always pictured union with Jesus and his people and was always the right by which somebody entered the church. So in Acts 2, people were baptized daily and added to their number. Number of what? Number of the local church there. That's why baptism has always preceded communion in church history. If you read through church history, you have baptism and then communion again and again. That's always been the normal practice of what it means to be a believer. Now here's why. Uh, as, As your baptism comes, you are declaring, I am someone who has put my faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit now indwells me. I'm sealed with the Holy Spirit. I'm now saying that I'm a child of God along with you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Now that's the, the entrance way is baptism. Once you're in the church, you partake in communion. Communion shows the ongoing sustaining of the people of God as they live in right relationship with God and one another. So communion is showing that we are in the church continually living uh, in relationship to God, to Jesus Christ, and to others, to the power of the Spirit. Now, church discipline is when you are put out of the church, like you see in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. And, and that, one of the things that it's described as is being cut off from the communion table. Why? Because you're now outside of the fellowship of the people of God. So the Bible presents it as baptism gets you in, communion is a picture of your ongoing relationship, and church discipline is when you have uh, been put out because you are living in unrepentant sin. Now, the Didache, again, written in the first century, also says uh, that there was a teaching that preceded baptism, and baptism always preceded communion, and that's the way that we see it practiced con- uh, consistently throughout the church. Fifth, oh, baptism is obedience. So even though we think the most important thing, obviously, is that you put your faith in Christ, we also think baptism is important. So if you put your faith in Jesus and you're a believer and you haven't been baptized, then we need to baptize you. Matthew 28 tells the disciples, Jesus tells the disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, putting the name of God himself on them, giving them a new name. And that's what we are called to do, to obey God in baptism. And finally, ah, well, that's good. We're up on time. So uh, let me go ahead and uh, I'm going to pray for us. But if you have more questions on baptism, again, in two weeks, we have a great class coming up on that. We also have a connections class where we would love to talk to you about what it means to be baptism baptized and how you can become a Christian. Let's pray.